Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek, and I'm here with Dr. Mark Plotkin. Mark, how are you doing? Josh, good to be here. Thank you. I'm fine. Thanks for joining us. And I'm glad to have met you through past podcast guest, Bill Benenson. If it's okay with you, I'll read a bit of your biography for people who haven't heard of you or haven't, who don't know your work yet or haven't watched your TED Talk, which I don't mind if they pause this now and go to watch it <laughs> or, or listen to your podcast for that matter. Thank you. Uh, so Dr. Mark Plotkin is a renowned ethnobotanist, which I hope you'll define in a second, who has studied traditional ind- indigenous plant use with elder shamans, that is traditional healers of Central and South America for much of the past 30 years. As an, well, here, as an ethnobotanist, a scientist who studies how and why societies have come to use plants for different purposes, he's carried out the majority of his research with the, I hope I say it right, Trio Indians of Southern Suriname. Correct. A small rainforest country in, in northeastern, northeastern South America, but also worked with shamans from Mexico to Brazil. And I'm just going to skim the rest, but it's, it's incredible of your work at Harvard, Director of Plant Conservation at World Wildlife Fund. You work with the Amazon Conservation Team. Uh, Time Magazine, Hero for the Planet in 1999, PBS, CBS, L, People, New York Times, uh, Honorary Degrees, Educated Harvard, Yale, Tufts, amazing background. Thank you. And now what put us together was that, well, what connected me with Bill Benenson was his work with the Hadza. Now, you've done movies with him, and I think you, you guys are good friends, is that right? Yes, Bill is a dear friend. He is a filmmaker and explorer, and he approached me about 10 years ago to look for a lost city in Central America. And I said, I'm not interested. I'm not an archaeologist, and I don't work in Central America. And he said, let me show you something. And he showed me LIDAR maps. These are maps of the rainforest using lasers from the air, and they were the three cities sitting there right under the canopy. So it took us about 15 minutes to find this city that had been searched for for hundreds of years. And that's the kind of person he is. He's a GSD. Get shit done. (laughs) And I also just had um, a couple guests on who worked with the Kogi in Colombia. And I believe that you've spent time with them. The Tsumane, if I've said that right, and the Matses. Yeah. Yeah. The Kogis are regarded as the Dalai Lamas of South America in the sense that the most traditional peoples outside of the few uncontacted tribes left in the Amazon. And we have the honor and privilege to work with them to get them titled to their lands. They believe in something they call the Linea Negra, the Black Line, which is an invisible thread that connects uh, dozens of sacred sites. And we have been able to raise the money, work uh, with our Colombian colleagues, with the Kogis, to purchase some of those lands. So these are sacred lands, typically at the mouths of rivers, um, they're estuarine areas, you know, very, very rich and important for marine resources, which benefits not only the Kogis themselves, but also the peasant communities that Campesinos next door. So it's a real win-win situation. And we're always looking for new resources, new monies to buy and protect more sacred sites for the Kogis. So when I think ethnobotanist, I think plant, but then, no, the botany means plant. What's intriguing, I mean, I'm trying to think of what direction to go into, of direction toward plants, direction toward people, but I think this is not separable. But I want to share with you what motivates me. As of a few years ago, I, if people talk to me about indigenous cultures and things like that, I would think, well, that sounds very nice. And, but I wouldn't really have thought much, I wouldn't have connected much with it. And over the past, say, decade of 
trying myself to live more sustainably. And I'm doing this not as some like interesting project, but out of compassion and empathy for people who are already feeling the, who are, who are already suffering from this and, and which could dramatically increase. But the more that I live sustainably, and I'm far from living sustainably, but I've reduced a lot of my pollution, the more that I find learning from indigenous peoples makes a lot more sense. And there's a story that I think a lot of people believe that I certainly internalize, that I think our, the culture that I grew up in teaches, which is that if we don't keep doing what we're doing and faster all the time, we're going to fall back in the Stone Age. Mothers are going to die in childbirth. 30 is going to be old age. If you get a cut, you're going to get gangrene and you're going to die, or you're going to have to chop off your arm with no anesthetics. And so I felt compelled to keep going. And the more that I move in the opposite direction, which is to say, trying to learn from people who've lived for significantly longer than my culture has, the more that everything that I think that I thought that I would give up and lose that I valued, I would get more of. And this is to me incredibly um, liberating and freeing and generates a lot of curiosity and humility I'm not a particularly humble person and I'm, I'm, I'm learning more of it. And I'm becoming increasingly fascinated with traditional cultures, not out of just some abstract curiosity, but it feels like it's gaining more humanity and offering more solutions or rather taking away problems that we seem to be heaping on ourselves. I'm not sure if I've gone on too long here. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there, Josh. But the point is that it's important not to over-romanticize indigenous peoples, but it's also important to get away from the more ridiculous idea that, that you and I grew up with, which was that these are primitive peoples and the sooner they become, you know, little white people, little gringos, the better off they'll be. So clearly there's lessons we can learn. I, I think that most people are not interested in giving up the internal combustion engine uh, electricity antibiotics. These are, are blessings, but within these blessings are curses as well, because the abuse of antibiotics has created a whole generation of superbugs. I wrote a book about that. And the chemicals we've created to grow more food crops are poisoning us and giving us a cancer. That's an overstatement, but it, it holds more than a kernel of truth. And so to me, the question is, what can we learn from indigenous peoples? How can we live more like them with the understanding that we are not them and never want to emulate them completely. It's, I would sum it up as saying it's an aspirational goal. And when you spend time with indigenous peoples, particularly in the rainforest where, where there's so little of Western modernity in some places, although it's pressing in on all sides, you really do see, sort of like you're trying to do, Josh, how little we need of what we consider to be necessities. And that's a lesson we, we, we should all learn. And, and just to conclude on this point, when you look at the most pristine of these societies, there's no heart disease, there's no obesity, there's no stress. And as soon as the modern world shows up, it's that and all the other uh, blessings slash curses of Western civilization. So we want to throw the baby with the bathwater, but we want the baby uh, and, and healthy and not polluted and living long and well. Yes, you've put it very well. You've thought about this longer than I have. I've thought about it a long time. How does it 
what do you mind if I go back to the beginning and what got you started? If you can, if you haven't shared that too many times. Yeah, I'm a child of the '60s. Um, went to college for a year, hated it. Dropped out, got a job at a museum at Harvard. Fell under the spell of the father of ethnobotany, Richard Schultes, the fellow who did seminal work with the peyote in the '30s. Uh, discovered magic mushroom psilocybin in the late 30s in Oaxaca, Mexico. And I have to preface it by saying that ethnobotanists don't discover anything. It's our indigenous friends, guides, and teachers that show it to us. Then went to the Amazon and discovered, I remember what I said about discovery, ayahuasca. So falling under the spell of this fellow uh, put me on the path that I'm still on. And I want to add that he wasn't just uh, an inspiration to ethnobotanists. People as diverse as E.O. Wilson, the greatest biologist of the 20th century, and Allen Ginsberg, uh, the beat poet, hailed him as a personal hero. I don't think there's anybody else who had tenure at Harvard who could make that claim. I feel like he he's also inspired people like Indiana Jones. I mean, a fictional character who wasn't who was a plunderer, but something like that too. Well, not only not only Indiana Jones, but also Medicine Man with Sean Connery was in part based on Schulte's persona. So that the idea of, of going off into the unknown to live with indigenous peoples is a romantic one. And I, I defy anyone to tell me that the majority of uh, anthropologists and archaeologists my age, uh, my generation, I'm a 67, weren't inspired uh, by Indiana Jones. And as you point out, Josh, Indiana Jones was a Tomb Raider. Uh, and ethnobotanists, we like to think of as just the opposite. They were not there to, to rape and run. We're there to learn and listen, uh, help and heal. So uh, my organization, the Amazon Conservation Team on the web at amazonteam.org, has worked with, at this point, over 100 different indigenous groups in South America, mostly in the Amazon, but some outside like the Kogis, to help them gain title to their lands, to help them map their lands, if you see pictures of guys in breechcloths carrying GPSs, we're the ones who started that 20 years ago. And we've had the honor and privilege of working with dozens and dozens and dozens of tribes and helping them map uh, over 90 million acres of ancestral rainforest. Now, I feel like I saw this talk of um, Kogi speaking at Google's headquarters. Yep. And I could tell that the people within Google were thinking, we're going to help them. And I could just see them getting their mitts into everything. And I suspect that you don't want West, the West to infiltrate there. I mean, we already are with the logging, with the, uh, the drug runners. With, is the mapping how, – how does the mapping work out? First of all, it's not my decision or our decision who should go in and, and, and shouldn't go into indigenous areas. The – uh, ultimate decision has to be theirs, but they need to be making informed decisions. So I was invited to speak at Google, and I had uh, one of the uh, paramount Kogi mamos, essentially a shaman or a priest, and one of the Kogi political leaders with me. And I got up and said, thank you for inviting me. And now it's time to listen to the Kogis. So I wanted them to hear firsthand from the indigenous peoples. Now, Western technology has proven fundamental to our mapping. But it's not like we have uh, hooked them on Western technology in a way where they've got to move to the city and move to the gold fields to do it. It's been done in a very measured way, very culturally sensitive way to show that technology can help. However, technology, whether it's a GPS or whether it is a, a, a sword, 
uh, or a scalpel uh, literally uh, can help or hurt. A scalpel can help you or a, a scalpel can hurt you. And when you have the idea that let's just go into indigenous areas all over the world and give them iPads and give them cell phones, well, then they've got to get money for SIM cards. So all of a sudden you're forcing them into the, uh, into the cash economy in a way they may not have been before. Like one of my indigenous colleagues told me, he says, you know, technology is an addictive drug. Once you get used to a cell phone, you don't want to give it up. So that this idea that let's just give them all technology and they'll live happily ever after is about as foolish as the idea as, well, they're indigenous peoples and we shouldn't pollute them by giving them any technology. So the answer, once again, is somewhere in between. Yeah, I feel like we generations ago, we would take over culture with guns and now we do it with addiction. Yes. And it's probably more effective today. And addiction in the broad sense, addiction to uh, not just technology, but salt and fat and soft drinks and all these other things, which, you know, in moderation may not be harmful. But when you get people hooked on it and they need money to buy it, uh, you can really have a, a very deleterious effect on the culture. So, again, I mean, it, you know, I mean, a Coca-Cola is, is like an iPhone. If you've enjoyed a, a cold Coca-Cola on the equator, uh, it's pretty spectacular. But, you know, if you don't understand that there's a lot of sugar in there, uh, the carbonation would be bad for your teeth and all that other stuff. And then you see some of these horror cases in Africa, people drinking uh, the, uh, these soft drinks, these sodas instead of water. Um, again, there's a downside that a lot of people didn't envision at the outset. Yeah, meanwhile, this, like, I'm not sure where coca grows, but I mean, they have that just fine. We would, like, we have a way of refining stuff in the name of efficiency, in the name of growth that. It's an excellent analogy. You know, in the hands or the mouths of the indigenous peoples, coca is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful plant and, and drug in a positive sense. We refine it, uh, we purify it, and it becomes a deadly, dangerous, polluting, addictive drug. I personally think that coca is one of the great plants of the future. It is a diet drug. It's full of vitamins. It fights hunger. Uh, gives you a, a, a nice little buzz, which you don't get if, you have, if you're on your fourth or fifth espresso. And uh, there, there's a, a clearer and, and present downside to the addiction side of it. So I'm hoping that we can learn from the cannabis example and, and turn coca into a positive crop, which doesn't result in pollution, which processing cocaine entails dumping a lot of nasty chemicals into the Amazon. But what can we learn from cannabis and apply to coca? Well, the understanding that coca has an even stronger downside in terms of cocaine addiction. So once again, uh, there's a happy medium that's possible. But, you know, the, the legalization of coca, to me, is like peace in the Middle East. We, we, we know what the basic outline looks like. But when you try and implement it, then it becomes uh, obscenely difficult. So legalizing coca has to be done very carefully uh, and clearly. Uh, making coca completely illegal has driven lots of misery, uh, lots of pollution, lots of deforestation, which I think everybody wants to avoid. There's a very good uh, lecture on, on the legalization of coca by Wade Davis, a fellow ethnobotanist, also trained by Richard Schultes at a conference last year called ESPD55. It's available on the net. Highly recommended. I'll check it out. And also, 
yeah, getting into talking about plants, fungi, and the botany part, I think I mean, around me, there seems to be a lot of people, they want to take ayahuasca, they want to become psychonauts and explore things like that. It sounds very interesting. And I can't deny that I've had experiences that were, that have really changed and enhanced my life through things like this. I also feel like there's like people want to sample stuff. And I'm not, I'm not sure. I hear from you that there's a lot to be gained, a lot to learn, most likely in the context of being really um, not just like dipping into the culture and kind of dropping in and checking it out. There's also something that I've been coming up with lately. And I'm wondering your thoughts on this, that the more that I cook from scratch, the more that when I eat fresh fruits and vegetables or very lightly processed, I find that I get a euphoria from really good food and it, that I never noticed before. I don't know if it's subtle and maybe this is just a placebo effect, but I think regular plants are really, really good. And I feel like we're missing out on, I mean, a few generations back, everyone had access to nature. I think probably almost everyone who ever lived could simply walk to solitude among trees or a beach with no planes overhead or plastic on the ground or, or cars in the distance. And as much as I, I'm really torn between, do I want to, you know, after reading, say, Michael Pollan's book, I think you're friends with him, or um, watching... Uh, what was the movie that uh, Bill did? I think you were in it um, about mushrooms. And fantastic fungi. Fa yeah, and also just I feel like just raw nature offers a tremendous amount, even without anything special. I'm not sure if I'm coherent here because right? I'm kind of sharing stuff of of uh, that I'm still trying to explore in myself. Well, you're covering a lot of bases here. What worries me is the trivialization of the sacred. Yeah. Just because you can buy ayahuasca on the internet doesn't mean, A, you should be doing it by yourself, and B, it's not dangerous, potentially, and C, there's not something that's lost when you're not doing it under the guidance of preferably a shaman or at least a, a trained guide. I had a family member who wanted to do some therapeutic work with mushrooms, and frankly, I haven't been able to find a trained guide, and I'm an ethnobotanist. So clearly, there's not enough people around to meet the need, which continues to grow, for people that want to use these plants or fungi therapeutically, but need some guidance in doing so. The whole idea of forest bathing, that is walking through a forest, which is good for your heart and good for your soul, is one which is generating a lot of literature these days. And the whole idea of, you know, eating and cooking whole foods, not eating and cooking processed foods, we're avoidable. Michael Pollan has been really the leading voice on this, but there's a lot of people that are uh, singing the same song as well they should. So we live in a very interesting time. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, you, you didn't want to eat raw foods. You know, you want to get to the grocery. That was the American way. Now people are realizing that a lot of these ailments we're suffering, like obesity and, and diabetes, uh, can be traced in part, certainly, to just processed foods and, and eating too much. So clearly there's a better way, and this goes back to the point we were uh, discussing earlier about what can we learn from indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples are not eating a lot of sugar. I'm talking about a relatively pristine state. 
Uh, they're not eating a lot of fats. Uh, they're not eating a lot of other greases. And as soon as the Western world shows up in its negative sense, you walk through a village and you, you're stepping over plastic bags and discarded batteries. You know, when you're in a forest society and you make everything out of plants or animal parts, you just throw it aside and it degrades. Plastic bags and batteries, not the same. You just described the physical. And what about the the psyche, the culture, the social interactions? How do those things get affected? Is that something you get to see? You know, there's a great book that I highly recommend called Witch Doctors and Psychiatrists, done by uh, a, a colleague of mine named Fuller Torrey, T-O-R-R-E-Y. It's not a print, but it's easy to find. And it talks about how much these tribal healers, how adept they are at dealing with mental uh, issues. Uh, and, and, and it's why these shamans can sometimes cure mental uh, problems that our own physicians and psychiatrists cannot. And I emphasize this is some of the time involves entheogenic plants and fungi, hallucinogenic plants and fungi, but not always. And this sort of holistic healing is what you're not getting when you go see your doctor and she's got seven minutes to hand you a script. So the well-being of a society, the well-being of a person, the well-being of a forest, I think it's all tied together. And in this industrialized society, I mean, one of the few upsides of this terrible pandemic we've just lived through and are hopefully seeing the end of is it's reassessing how, how much we're social creatures and how much of our well-being involves just being around other people, you know, even making small talk or being in an office or chatting. It's, it's much more than, okay, you get sick, you go to the doctor, and he gives you a prescription, and you're done. And I think the shamans have the edge because you're living in their village, you're part of the culture, and they know things about you that uh, a doc may not know about or find out about uh, in, in the five or six or ten minutes he or she has in the office. This leads me to something that I've been saying lately is that as I've learned more about these cultures, I used to think that they were Stone Age and just hadn't caught up with us, as you described at the beginning. You know, they hadn't become white like us. And, but that's not the, now I see that, that I view it as not the case, that they're living not in the Stone Age, they're living quite well. And they look at our culture and they don't, I think I, I learned they could progress to us. Why don't they? And the answer that I picked up growing up was because they're so, they're so stupid and they're so ignorant. And once we teach them and we bring our schools in there, then then they'll know. But now my view is, my understanding is that they look at us and they say, out of knowledge and awareness, we don't want to give up our, what would it be? Our, our relationships, our, our freedom, our, our um what what we value, but we get less of, like our free time, our, our leisure, our being able to do what we like. And you guys don't have that, meaning us. Like they look at us and say, we see what's there and they do see what's there. And they, they say, that's not worth it, the sacrifice. Is that a fair way of... It, it's important not to overgeneralize because there are some indigenous peoples that come in contact with a culture and they say, that's what I want. And they move to the city and they live... Uh, unhappily ever after, in, in, in certainly in some cases, if not many. Um, so the idea that all indigenous peoples are smart and wise to the ways of the world and realize that 
we have things like AIDS and poverty and insomnia and, and stuff like that that they don't. That's not 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 always the case. Uh, groups like the Kogis that have made such a successful effort to hold on to their tradition and live in a traditional way have been more resilient when it comes to the allure of Western civilization. But, you know, my first book, Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice, which I wrote 30 years ago, which is still the best-selling book I've ever produced, I tell the story of a, uh, an ethnobotanist named Edward Anderson. And he went to Guatemala and was looking at some of the Indian gardens and thought, what a rat's nest, you know, it's just a, a jumble of different plants and stuff. And only after studying it did he realize that it was a work of genius, that by not growing everything in a row, it was resistant to pests and diseases. By not growing just one variety of corn, it was resistant to pests and diseases. By mixing different plants, there'd always be something edible at any time of year. And it's this constant underestimation of indigenous people's wisdom, knowledge, and sophistication, which has really characterized our understanding or misunderstanding of what they know and what they have to offer. Again, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying they're noble savages, they know everything, we know nothing. That's nonsense. But as I said, it's equally nonsensical to think, well, they're primitive and they're stupid, and the sooner they, they get like us, the better off they'll be. Because that's what I, I learned growing up in Western society. And now after four decades of studying these people, I, I realize how bogus that, that idea is. So we underestimate their understanding. We also over estimate, well, again, not generalizing about ourselves either, but we probably overestimate our own understandings of many things. Definitely. I'll give you a concrete example, which is a little odd, but uh, about two years ago, there was an article in the New York Times about somebody's doing research with electric eels, electric eels from native to the Amazon. And they had found for the first time that electric eels hunt in packs because the current thinking ever since electric eels were studied by Linnaeus 250 years ago was that uh, electric eels hunt individually. And after three years of study, the steel biologist recorded electric eels hunt in packs. So just as a test, I called uh, one of my friends and employees in Paramaribo, the country of Suriname, and I said, call one of the shamans who had a cell phone and ask him if electric eels hunt in packs or hunt individually. And he called me back 15 minutes later and said, the, uh, uh, the shaman said, well, everybody knows they hunt individually and they hunt in packs. <laughs> so we'd be to know whatever asked them. And, and time and time again, we find out that by not asking them something, we underestimate how much they know. By not, yeah, by not asking. And it's not like they, well, we don't know what to ask a, a lot of times. I mean, we can't blame ourselves for not knowing what to ask. That's true, too. And I also have to go back because I'm too much of a geek not to say that you started talking about the electric eels by saying our current thinking. So I love the pun. Yes, that was intentional. Oh, it was? Okay, cool. Thank you for picking up on that pun. (laughs) But electric eels are one of my uh, obsessions. Uh, Electric eels have been studied for almost 300 years. About two years ago, we found two new species of electric eels in in several of the tributaries of the Amazon River. Electric eels are eight-foot-long slabs of meat that shoot out electric currents. They're like the Jedi of the Amazon River, okay? <laughs> and and uh-huh. this is not something you can miss. And so, you know, hundreds of years of study of Amazon uh, fish, and we found two new species. So what that says to me is how much is still out there waiting to be discovered in the fungal world, which are much less obvious than electric eels are, in the plant world, in the animal world, 
And here's why it's important. Here's a concrete example. Electric eels were part of the inspiration for Volta when he developed the first battery hundreds of years ago. Now, scientists are studying electric eels to figure out how to make smaller batteries to implant in the human body to power things like pacemakers. So once again, something we've been studying for hundreds of years still has new lessons to teach us. So when I said earlier, when I was talking about, um, I guess, psychedelics, if that's the right word, and you said, you, you, you use the phrase, I think, trivialization of the, of the sacred, and nature itself is sacred. I mean, every part of it feels like, I mean, I'm in my apartment right now. I look over and I see on my windowsill a few potted plants, some edible, some not. And then outside of that, there's almost nothing that I can see that's living. I can go to my window and look at, down the block and see a park. Mm-hmm. I would suspect that a lot of people listening right now to our voices, a lot of them probably can't see anything living within view. And if they do, it's something that people put there. And I'm also thinking of like monocrops don't, in contrast to the, the that tangled mess that you described. I feel like there's a lot of sacred there that without anything, you know, mood altering or anything like that, it's right there. And I think we've, we're, we're missing out on it. I'm probably overgeneralizing again. Uh, I, I, I think that the, the challenges faced by organized religion is due to the fact that it's not meeting many people's spiritual needs. And there's a whole movement underway to introduce or reintroduce psychedelics as a way of connecting people to nature. For example, there's a wonderful book published two years ago called The Immortality Key by Brian Murarescu. There's an interview with him on my podcast, Plants of the Gods, uh, where he talks about the, the basic religious roots of ancient Greek society. The Eleusinian mysteries were due to a hallucinogenic potion. And he posits that uh, Christianity came out of the Eleusinian mysteries, not purely out of Judaism, like most people think. And that the original Eucharist uh, was a uh, hallucinogenic drink was part of the ritual, that there were plants and fungi in the wine. And that uh, the way to get people back to church or synagogue or the mosque, or whatever, is to reintroduce these plants and fungi. This is a, another conversation. But the point being that uh, religions have turned away from nature in many ways, and that that connection has been broken, and I think that there's a yearning for more of a connection uh, to the earth, to nature, to other people, and psychedelics are one of the ways to do that. So this is why ethnobotany is so endlessly fascinating, that people don't understand the role that nature has played in the rise of our civilization. I'll give you an example, and that is the American Revolution. If you ask people why the American Revolution happen, they say, well, you know, we rebelled against the British and the Boston Tea Party, but ethnobotanists have a different view. The British built and ran the biggest, best Navy uh, in the world hundreds of years ago, and he who controlled the uh, sea controlled the world. That was the British Empire. But the British needed tall trees for the mass of their tall ships. There were no composite materials, and they had long cut down all the great oaks and other great trees from Great Britain and were harvesting them from the Baltics. Now, we're talking 18th century, 1700s. But they realized that the American white pines 
were the best tall trees in the world, and they wanted those pines to continue to build the best Navy. And some Americans realized that if they held on to these pines, they could build a bigger Navy and run the world. Now, the American Revolution happened for many reasons, but the fact that it came down to New England white pines is one which you'll find in very few history books. The point here being is, in the words of my mentor Schultes, the problem with historians is uh, they have trouble telling a pine tree from a palm tree. And so they underestimate the role of plants, underestimate the role of nature in the impact on our culture and our society. And once again, uh, I cover this in great detail on my podcast because I want to show how these links happen. For example, the greatest writer of the 20th century, Ernest Hemingway, the greatest painter of the 20th century, Picasso, were inspired in large part by absinthe. Again, this is overlooked in many of the biographies, but it's a fact and, and the facts exist. So this is, to me, the connection between people and nature has never been a broken, even though in our Western industrialized society, it's been minimized uh, in some very deleterious ways. Well, let's explore more, if you're up for it, for sharing more about the podcast, because I think that, I mean, Plants of the Gods, which I believe is Schulte's book, I mean, you, you Correct. Uh, paid homage to him, I guess. Yes. And I think that the, it's Plants of the Gods, but also not just plants, fungi and animals. And I think it's partly to, I mean, what you just the, what you just shared is a part of history, a part of humanity, a part of our connection to our world that is very easy to drop or very easy to disregard or think, well, that's nice, but you know, GDP growth. And to restore that, I am I reading it right? I mean, it's also to to help normalize and and, and bring back something that's missing and and recognize the value of these things that's so easy to lose if we just watch Game of Thrones. Well, Schulte's greatest book, he wrote about 12 or 13 books, was Plants of the Gods. He co-authored it with Albert Hoffman. Albert Hoffman was the inventor of LSD. And when Schulte's was retiring, and I was visiting one last time in his office at Harvard, he handed me the lecture notes to a class he taught called Bio 104, Plants and Human Affairs. That was a very special course because that was the course he took as an undergraduate that got him interested in ethnobotany. And that was the course I then took from him, which got me interested in ethnobotany. And I held on to those notes for decades. And I always thought, well, if I don't do something with these notes, uh, this knowledge is going to die with me. So I decided to turn them into a podcast. And that's Plants of the Gods, homage to Schultes, homage to uh, what were truly our plants and fungi of the gods. And to look at the ways uh, that plants have played this role, fungi have played this role that's very much overlooked. For example, witches in the Middle Age, they really did fly through the night sky. And here's how they did it. They took solanaceous plants, that is plants of the tomato family, some of which are highly hallucinogenic. They rubbed them on broomsticks, and then the woman sat astride them, naked. And there are many uh, membranes in the vagina which can absorb these types of chemicals. So they flew through the night sky of their mind. And if you look at the early uh, paintings, carvings, lithographs of witches, I'm not talking about the Wicked Witch of the West here. I'm talking about stuff from hundreds of years ago. You see that the witches are nude. And they're nude, and they're sitting on broomsticks. 
This again is a concrete botanical, ethnobotanical explanation of a phenomenon which is not explained clearly in the history books. And Plants of the Gods, my podcast, uh, is replete with examples like this cool, fun, insightful, weird, uh, shocking stuff that you can only understand through the prism of humanity's relationship with plants. And not just humanity, but proto-humanity. For example, I was doing an article on the ethnobotany of wine, and I talked to my old friend, Jane Goodall, the great primatologist, and she said, you know, humans aren't the only people who like to get uh, get drunk, essentially. She says, some of my chimps seek out marula fruits, which are fermented and alcoholic, and they get completely snuggered. And then I was able to get on YouTube and find pictures of elephants eating marula fruit and stumbling around in, in the African veldt. So that uh, the impact of wine on culture has been described as the, uh, the drunk monkey thesis, that because our ancestors, our prosimian ancestors, uh, went down to the ground to eat the ripest fruits, which are the sweetest fruits, which are also the fruits that are fermenting, that this grand expansion of human consciousness 100 years, 100,000 years ago, was due to the fact that these uh, monkeys and apes and, and proto-simians were getting drunk. There's a counter thesis, actually I think it's a complementary thesis, from the great Terence McKenna, an ethnobotanist in his own right, who said, no, it's not the drunk monkey hypothesis, it's the stoned ape hypothesis, that 100,000 years ago, our ancestors discovered hallucinogenic mushrooms, and that led to the birth of consciousness and language and, and fire uh, making and things like that. So once again, this is why this whole field is so endlessly fascinating to me and to others. You characterized the stories as, as I forget exactly the words, but like fun and interesting and, and counterintuitive and stuff that you don't see in the history books. But I think there's something more to it that I think that you're, let's say that many more people get, listen to it and, and, and it becomes a major part of our culture. I feel like there's some a major cultural shift or maybe restoration of something lost that could come out of this that's beyond simply these are interesting stories. Am I right? Or am I? Well, uh, you're, you're revealing my hidden agenda here, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, look, I mean, that's no botanist. I'm not a theologian, but I, I do want people to have a better appreciation of nature. And I think if you want to understand the future, you need to understand the past. And my focus is on the past and, and to some degree the present to understand the potential of these plants. Uh, primarily the host in the plants, it is plants of the gods, but many of these others that are uh, helpful. And, and I have a, a, a more expanded vision of plants of the gods than even my mentor Schulte, because he never wrote about alcohol as a mind-expanding plant. And that's where I, I disagree. So there's a, a podcast episode on the ethnobotany of wine. And uh, there's, there's, one, there's two on absinthe. One on absinthe in Europe in the, in the Belle Epoque, the 19th century in Europe, where it inspired people like Toulouse-Lautrec uh, and, and many of his contemporaries, and also an episode on uh, absinthe in New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans is my hometown, and I keep returning to it in the podcast because it's such a crossroad of cultures, uh, not just the French. Uh, remember that the French Quarter, built by the French, was burned down and rebuilt by the Spanish. So. To me, the French Quarter looks a lot more like Havana 
or Cartagena than it does any part of Harris. Um, and that it, it was part of the, the horrible slave trade. Um, it has uh, long been a capital of the Caribbean. And just growing up surrounded by all these uh, wonderful and weird cultures, uh, I think gave me a, a broader perspective than I might have had if I, I grew up somewhere else. Yeah, if only they could develop a cuisine or some music. Well, of course you... That was my you, attempt at a joke. <laughs> you, you know why jazz was invented in New Orleans, don't you? It's because of the plants of the gods. Uh, when jazz was being created at the turn of the uh, 20th century, the 1900s, New Orleans was awash in drugs. If you read Jelly Roll Martin's autobiography, uh, Mr. Jelly by uh, Alan Lomax, who transcribed it, uh, he talks about opium and cocaine and marijuana and all that other stuff. And remember that uh, if you listen to the, the, the predominant music at the time, it was very formal, timing was very fixed, but then they all started smoking dope. And what's jazz? Jazz is improvisation. Uh, if you listen to the Maple Leaf Ride by Scott Joplin, it's very formal, very carefully timed. If you listen to the Maple Leaf Ride by Joe Will Morton, he's rocking all over the beat. So I think marijuana's alteration in time, and marijuana entered this country, the port of New Orleans. So I think the birth of jazz in New Orleans is intimately tied to uh, marijuana and, and where it entered the country. And I have a, a marijuana trilogy in the Plants of the Gods podcast, where I start out with the first episode talking about how marijuana is as American as apple pie. I then talk about how hemp was the most important American fiber from the creation of this country. And then I talk about marijuana in New Orleans and the birth of jazz. Uh, at the beginning of this conversation, I was talking about how much I get out of, I don't know if the regular plants, I mean, the stuff I buy in the store, but like, or at the farmer's market. And I don't know if you're deliberately uh, motivating to expand my view of of what to experience through plants and fungi. But it sure feels like I'm feeling a tug to, uh, not, not even to expand, but it's, it, it feels like to restore something that, that something's been taken, something that used to be, um, I don't want to say common or normal, because probably ritualized, but um, probably a part of many people's lives. I mean, was, is this in every culture or is this uh, mind mood enhancing, mind expanding, consciousness raising uh, plants and, and fungi? Is this something that's been in every culture or just sometimes here and there? Am I missing something? You know, Andrew Weil, W-E-I-L, who's really been the, the leader in integrating other forms of medicine from acupuncture to herbalism into Western medicine. I mean, now everybody accepts that, but when he started doing it in the 60s and 70s, even though he's a graduate of Harvard Medical School, he's thought of kind of a, a weirdo. Uh, Andrew Weil, in one of his early books, pointed out that altered states are part of human well-being. And if you don't think there's a calling to alter your state, then why do five-year-olds spin in circles till they fall down dizzy? So that there's almost a need on all of us to get outside of ourselves. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, drinking ayahuasca in a jungle hunt. That can be meditation. That can be hypnosis. So that getting outside of ourselves, a friend of mine named Randy Fertel wrote a book about this. 
about the importance of improvisation and how important it is to just sort of step away and let things flow. And people do this through different ways. Sometimes it's just watching a movie, it puts you in a different state. Uh, sometimes it's dancing, puts you in a different state. Sometimes it's prayer, puts you in a different state. So I don't want to oversell hallucinogens as something we all need to do and do regularly. But I do think we all need to get out of ourselves and just sort of clear our mind. Our mind is always full of cobwebs that get there because we watch too much TV or in traffic and get pissed off or, you know, something in the workplace got on our nerves. And hallucinogens are one of the tools to get to a different place, but only one and not an essential one. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to describe my personal feeling, which is that these things are useful for some people in some situations. They're not a panacea. We're living through the, the psychedelic renaissance. And my worry is that hallucinogens are being oversold as the cure for everything, which is certainly not the case. And let me give you a concrete example. Uh, a couple of months ago, I read an interview with some odious billionaire. I, I, don't, I say he's odious. I don't know the guy. Maybe he's a wonderful guy. But the way the interview went put, really got on my nerves, which is he said, I took mushrooms. It was life changing. I finally understand Bitcoin. <laughs> that is, to me, that, the juxtaposition is, that, yeah. that is like the poster child for the trivialization of the sacred. So the. I feel like an opposite of trivialization would be ritual, and I'm, I'm maybe oversimplifying that. But that, uh, what's the difference between trying something out because a friend gave you some versus uh, a, a ritual, a ceremony, a, a session with someone experienced? I mean, is it is it total night and day, or do they both have value just in different ways? Does it depend on the on the substance? I think we can all agree that nobody's life has ever been ruined by smoking a joint once. I, I think we can all agree that it's really a bad idea to shoot heroin. Okay. There's a middle ground there. We're using mind-altering substances, including opium, possibly, under the guidance of somebody who really knows what they're doing and really knows where you need to get to, uh, can be therapeutic. And look, there's bad shamans like there's bad doctors, okay? It's not because somebody is indigenous that they're all wise and all-knowing. But particularly with ayahuasca, I have a great deal of worry that all of these people are using it and they take a workshop for a weekend and think they're ayahuasca masters. That, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. That makes me very nervous. And in, in one of Michael Pollan's books, he talks about the fact that people are going to the Amazon in great numbers, particularly around the Quito's Peru, and seeking healing um, from shamans they found on the internet. Now, the people that are in real danger are the ones who are emotionally fragile. They can really come apart uh, if they're not under the guidance of somebody who's really a master. So this is why, on the one hand, I'm proselytizing that hallucinogens need to be more widely available and widely used, but really only under the supervision of knowledgeable people, ideally, a master shaman, whether it's uh, mushrooms in Oaxaca in southern Mexico, or whether it's ayahuasca in the northwestern Amazon. But as I said, there's not enough shamans to go around, which is why we need shamans apprentices, which is part of our program at the Amazon Conservation Team. But this is a great field for people who feel called to heal. We need more psychedelic guides. I know there's there's programs now in the Bay Area. I think there's programs in Oregon. These things are going to be popping up all over. 
So the demand is growing daily. The supply is not growing fast enough. And this is something you support if effectively trained by people who follow lineage of some sort? Is- well, in, in a traditional setting, yes. And we're anxious to see that tradition not be broken with modernity pressing it on all sides. But uh, it, it shouldn't just be indigenous peoples. There's going to be uh, guides taught at U.S. schools or universities or European or South America that can play a vital role. But I refuse to believe that a physician who took a semester of this stuff in medical school um, is going to know as much as some of these ayahuasca shamans. I talked to an ayahuasca shaman one time. I was giving a commencement at Tulane Medical School, and I was in Columbia, and I talked to one of the ayahuasca masters. And I said, how long did it take you to learn to be an ayahuasca shaman? And he said, well, you know, in, in, by your yardstick, I'm 92 years old. I started drinking ayahuasca when I was five. I'm still learning. I'm also thinking about how in meditation, I meditate very regularly and I have for quite some time. And there is something to be, I mean, there are many traditions going back to many different places and Americans are doing some very interesting things that I think are, I'm, I'm learning a lot from that are either combining things or different. And some of it is to me, doesn't make sense, but some of it makes a lot of sense. So I could see that bringing something from South America, Central America here, it could evolve in, in interesting, valuable ways. Well, as we wind down, let me give you an example of something that makes a lot of sense and requires more research. Microdosing, I mean, is going through the roof. So many people are doing it, but they're not doing it based on scientific research uh, yet. Uh, there's very little scientific research. Some of it's being done by my pal Paul Stamets, S-T-A-M-E-T-S, who's featured in the film Fantastic Fungi, which everybody needs to watch if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it, go watch it a second time. You'll get even more out of it. I concur, yeah. But micro, microdosing doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're taking stuff that's not enough to have an effect. You're taking hallucinogens, but not enough of a dosage to make you hallucinate. So how is that working? Well, it turns out that some of the research is indicating that these microdoses may have very therapeutic effects, and you're not tripping your brains out. There's a fellow at um, LSU Medical School who's looking at microdoses as a treatment for asthma. Very promising. So that, once again, these compounds may have different effects uh, far beyond what they're just doing to your mind. Or maybe they're doing something to your mind, even not enough to make your mind hallucinate, but doing something positive. And this is a a very fertile ground for further research. So the point being that these are what we call biodynamic principles. These are chemicals that have an effect on the human body. And the effects and the therapeutic possibilities are not limited to emotional issues, not limited to uh, something that necessarily involves uh, entheogenic or, or, or hallucinogenic experiences. We've barely scratched the surface, and I, I hope you'll come back for another episode to continue the conversation, because I know I see we're running out of time. Yeah, I look forward to continuing the conversation on, on the pod and uh, in person even. Oh, yeah. I, I invite you over to my, for my famous no-packaging vegan stew when you're in New York. I look forward to that. And anything to, I mean, we'll, we'll continue, but anything to wrap up with 
or any message to the listeners to close with? Well, the message is uh, both good and bad. The, the world is really screwed up. We see war in Europe. We see pollution. We see deforestation. We see poverty. We see racism. But by the same token, there's reasons for hope. Like I always say, when I'm asked about the Amazon, is a glass half full or half empty? Well, any glass that's half full is half empty. We see the recognition of sh shamanic wisdom. We see the value of nature. We see the value of hallucinogens. So the candle's being burned at both ends. The battle's been joined. The question is, will good triumph over evil? Will uh, nature preservation tri uh, triumph over nature destruction? This is what we're trying to do with the Amazon conservation team to make sure that nature wins. And we believe that conservation is first and foremost, not just a utilitarian exercise, not just whether there's a cure for cancer in the rainforest or the coral reef. We believe in a holistic vision where protection of mother nature, clean air, clean water, and new medicines is about protecting ourselves as well. That's what we do. That's who we are. Of all the places that you, the links that you described, would, would ACT be the one to start with? Well, Amazon Conservation Team can be found at amazonteam.org. Um, we welcome people's support. And uh, I have a webpage, markplotkin.com, that has a lot of my writings that go beyond just the Amazon. And if you're interested in more information, check that out or check out my podcast, Plants of the Gods, found on all major platforms. Mark Plotkin, thank you again. Thank you, Josh. It's been a pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.